Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We have a great episode for you today with an incredible woman called Nimco Ali, who I know many of you will be aware of for her activism. Nimco is a survivor of female genital mutilation and has made it her life's mission to eradicate the practice. She talked to me about her new book, What We're Told Not to Talk About, But We're Going to Anyway. So I'm going to bring you that conversation in a few moments. But first, thanks to everyone who sent in their stories of happy happenings during lockdown. We've read them all. They've cheered us up. So thank you very much. And we've chosen a winner. So we'll be sending a lovely bundle of books to Circa, who got in touch with us on Instagram to say that in her happy news, her partner has accepted a job in Washington, D.C. And so, says Circa, we're packing up our life here and moving stateside for four years for a new adventure. He leaves next week and I am only able to join him after Christmas because of work commitments. So some books to keep me company in the meantime would be much appreciated. Well, we're delighted for you both, Circa, and we've loved hearing the happy stories. So thanks very much again for sending them in. And just a quick reminder that our book club is back soon. I can't wait to see them all on Zoom. And we've been reading Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld. And if you want to get involved, you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think of the book. Now, Nimco Ali says female genital mutilation was the patriarchy's way of trying to break her and keep her silent. But in fact, the opposite happened. It made her the loudest person in the room. She's from Somalia originally, but lives in England and was brought up there. She's the co-founder of the charity Daughters of Eve and the Five Foundation. And for the past several years, she's been campaigning to end the devastating practice, which according to the World Health Organization, affects 200 women and girls around the world. Her goal is to eradicate FGM by 2030. And she's also just published her first book, What We're Told Not to Talk About, but we're going to anyway. So it's an amazing series of conversations with women all over the world, very intimate, often devastating on subjects such as sex, masturbation, periods, pregnancy, the menopause and lots more. Now, the book was initially called Rude, but she was worried that it would suggest the contents were somehow shocking or indecent, which is not the case. Uh, She says that these are conversations that take place in quiet corners between women, but are rarely aired publicly due to fear of judgment. It's a really great book. It's funny. It's moving. It's illuminating. And I was delighted to speak to her. I hope you enjoy this. Here she is, the brilliant Nimco Ali. Nimco, thank you so much for joining us. Now, you're an activist and a campaigner. And as Catelyn Moran, someone we love on this podcast, says, a heroine for our time. 
And I just wondered, as a victim of FGM yourself, and you document the experience really well in the book, could you talk about your own story and tell listeners what happened to you as a young child? Um, yes, thank you very much for having me. And I love Catelyn as well. She's um, one of my heroes. And I hope that someday I can be as open as she is in terms of like sexuality and stuff. But um, yeah, so I was seven when I had female genital mutilation, which comprises of non-medical procedures on the female anatomy. And I had a very invasive form of FGM, which um, is very common in the Somali community, which is called infibulation. And that's where not only is part of the anatomy removed, but what's left is kind of stitched together. And as a seven-year-old, obviously, it wasn't something that made any sense to me. And I think a lot of times people always want to know about the pain of the FGM, but it wasn't it wasn't the moment, like the pain in the moment, but it was the pain of the kind of like trying to search for answers and um, everything like that. I came back to the UK and um, by, by the time I was 11, I developed severe complications that which was urinary infection um, based which led to my kidneys almost failing and then I had medical intervention in the UK at the age of 11 which I think is a, made me a lot more luckier than um, the some of, some, some of the women that I know but this is like such a, a global pandemic that there are 200 million women like me so it's not just the story of just some random girl in the UK who had FGM there's there's in the UK, there's about almost close to 200,000 women living with FGM and then globally it's 200 million. I mean, this is something that your mum gave to you, thought that this was important for her culture and you've long made peace with her about that. But can you talk a little bit about how people come to believe that something like that is so important culturally that they need to do it for their daughters? Yeah, it's, well, it's just a norm. So 98% of Somali women have undergone FGM. And in my own family, it's just my niece who's nine and my little cousin who is 11 who haven't undergone FGM. So every single woman they love has been scarred by um, female genital mutilation. And for my mum, it was like, if nobody's giving you the ability to question something that everybody's doing, then you're not going to question and you're just going to carry on. And I think that was what really led me to search for answers was that my mother and I um, had conversations. Everything was explained. There was there was a lot of love and trust there. And this kind of broke that because I just thought, like, what is going on? And her inability to justify it to me, which I'm, I'm really happy that she did not do that because I always say that my FGM happened out of context. It was one of the things that... For me, I had it and nothing else was said afterwards. A lot of my, um, the women and the families I've seen, it's like it was, see, they, were, they were told to probably ease the pain and the mental anguish. We're told that it was something that defined them as a woman. It was something they should be proud of. So people like hold it, hold on to it as some kind of incredible thing. And even coming back to the UK and having friends who who'd undergone FGM, and even when I had my defibrillation, I was very actively talking about it and it's like I wasn't ashamed of um of what had happened to me so for her it was just a normal thing and to have this um child your first child to be so like you know vocal about this act that you haven't even come to terms with yourself is it must have been traumatic and also the time that there had been a civil war in Somalia and Somaliland where um, where we were from had been attacked so I think Going back to Somaliland in 2016 and really um, learn to see my mom just as a woman helped me understand that it must be really hard when your first child comes and throws back in your face something which you haven't been able to deal with yourself. Just for listeners again, can you explain, is it is it possible to explain briefly why it was so normal and what significance it had culturally? Like why all women and girls have this done? 
Um, so basically, like I said, it's like, you know, it's 98%. So there's no other woman in the Somali community that hasn't had FGM and it's 4,000 years old. So it's just something that because of the inability to really question it, I think they've just kind of repeated it. And, like, you know, I get a lot of people that um, I have similar conversations, ironically, with men who are very pro-male um, circumcision. It's this thing of the fact that the idea that your son's anatomy doesn't look like you means that he might not have the same experiences um, as you. And I, and I, it's really bizarre what um, what people legitimise as as okay because it happened to them in order not to deal with their own pain. Mm-hmm. And weird enough, I used to make a joke that said that I only dated um, conservative Tory men who'd gone to boarding school because we had the same traumatic life experiences. But it is quite traumatic being a seven-year-old sent to a horrible like you know boarding school where you're probably abused and all these things but then you keep doing it because you think oh it made me who I am it gave it gave me the start in life and I think that's just the reality that my mum never questioned it she's like it's normal it's fine but now that she has space she is actually questioning a lot of things it's um recently there was a bill in Somalia that was being passed about um child marriage and there was a um there was a um an, an illustration of, of an old man and a young girl and she's like, well, that could be me and your father on our wedding day. So, like, she is actually realizing that a lot of the experiences that she had were things of like forced marriage, FGM, and like, you know, that my father wasn't necessarily the best um, person he could have been. So it's, and then now it's my, it's been my role as as the adult child to help her through those stuff. So tell me about how old you were when you decided that this was something you were going to speak out about, because I know when you're you said you, it happened sort of out of context for you, but it is a huge taboo. There's lots of stigma around it, a very difficult subject for people to talk about. So do you remember the time when you decided this was going to be something that you had to speak about and had to try and change? Um, so I always spoke about it. in so I always spoke about it. At- since I never stopped talking about it directly because when I came back to the UK as a seven-year-old, I, I, I said to my teacher, this weird thing happened to me and I wanted some context. Um, when I was a teenager, I would tell my Somali friends, like, why are you guys so okay with this? Like, what's going on? But then I kind of thought, like, nobody really understands me, so I'm just not going to bother um, saying things. And then I remember in my early 20s, I would talk about it in a third person because I ended up going into politics. And we and we had situations of like you know FGM, and I remember realizing how my silence was massively complicit when I was doing some um, mentoring for a young Somali girl who'd just been sectioned under the Mental Health Act um, because she was rejected by her Somali um, fiance at the time because she had FGM and there was this um, like there is always a fallacy that um, that that women that have had FGM can't have orgasms as opposed to really men being rubbish in bed is the main issue, not not the FGM. And I remember um, going to um, this event that she was hosting, that she was, talk- that was speaking at, and she was on the stage, like, really hyperventilating. And I thought to myself, like, my silence is so complicit to her struggle because not only does she not know what she's been through is, like, is very common, but there's somebody in this room who's had the same experiences. So that was kind of, like, the first impetus to kind of really speak about it. But I also knew how dangerous that was. So in 2012 was the first time I publicly spoke about it. And I put a hat on, I changed my name, and I, and I did a thing in the Evening Standard because I just really wanted girls to know that everything was okay. I, like, FGM can happen to you, but it doesn't define you. And you can have a life beyond the FGM. So it was twelve. It was it was it was it was two thousand and twelve, and 
I also kind of wanted my niece to be able to grow up in a family not only not only that she was protected from FGM because she was my niece, but because it was seen as something that was um, wrong and we could have, and all girls could be as lucky as she would be. So yeah, I think it was just like, I, I, I felt bad. I think guilt drove me to talking about it rather than any um, kind of vision that I was going to be um, leading change on a global level. But then that's exactly what happened. And it's kind of, it snowballed and you did become the face of this uh, and you, you founded the five foundation and you're a CEO of that. Tell yeah. us about the work you do and how, and the, the incredible impact that you have made in that very short space of time. Yeah. So basically the first thing I really wanted to do was to keep girls in the UK safe, because I think for me, it wasn't just the fact that it was my family that this had happened. It was all the soul, the kind of the institutions that I went through. So I go into school telling my teacher, like, honestly, I was in a, I was in a major hospital in, Cardiff, which is the capital, like in in like you know one of the capital um, cities of the United Kingdom, they could see what had happened to my anatomy, but nobody said anything. And I think for me, it was that lack of like try not to be offensive um, was more important than actually asking me if I was okay. Mm-hmm. And the, and the reality is there was nothing else happening in my family that was like that needed concern. But like you've got eleven year old who almost just died because her vagina's been stitched together. I think I think it's okay to ask her how she is so I really wanted to change that was what I wanted to change and the conversations I wanted to have was like I wanted young girls of colour to be seen as being British as like you know as, as as anybody else and it was really ironic the people that I found the most kinship again with was very um very wealthy privately educated white men who were in the conservative party because to them it was just so like why would anybody do that and they wanted to do something about it so that was the first kind of standpoint. And then I started going to Africa and seeing um, how incredible, like, you know, incredible work that women were doing on, on the front lines and how little funding was getting to women. And that's the reason why we found the Five Foundation. It's, it's a global partnership to end FGM. And I think the reality is if we're going to, if we want to end FGM, it's about working with survivors of FGM. It's like everybody t- tells you, oh, we need to advocate and bring awareness around FGM. And I was like, in countries like we, I know FGM is wrong. Like it's it, it's horrible. But unless I had the power and the means to leave those, like you know, patriarchal systems, then I'm gonna keep doing that thing because that's the only way they think that they can keep um, girls safe. So yeah, it's just like I think in terms of the work that I've done, it's I think it's been very bringing humor to a very horrible subject has been very successful. I found. Yeah, you talk about your fanny a lot, which is great. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Because I think it's it's like I understood the kind of like there's a Somali saying it's called Belahishod means like do you have no shame and I just I've never really lived within that kind of context of the things that I should be embarrassed and shame like feel shame of and my anatomy has never been one of those. So where has your campaigning brought the this current situation? I mean, how better is it for for women and girls now? So for women and girls in the UK, I like, you know, had I been, um, I think if I was like, if I was going away to um, Somalia or Somaliland, which has a 90, like, you know, I said, like one of the highest rates of FGM, there, there, there would be intervention. But I think what also has happened is that there's enough space and conversation for women to understand that there are opportunities for them to really protect their daughters. So in, in the UK, we've moved 
like you know light years away from where we were even like seven eight years ago but i think the the real issue is on on the international front and specifically on the continent of africa it's like covid has really shown that international organizations and international institutions don't actually work the way that we want them to work and the concept of international development is very imperial and very like you know um racist in the way that it works and i just and and that and that needs to really um change so unfortunately things have worsened in um africa as as a whole in the last um four months and kenya which was one of the most successful countries in terms of ending fgm has gone backwards because the whole point is like they're using the opportunity of covid in order to uh, like you know to cut girls subject to fgm to more, and then to forcibly ma- marry them off because girls are seen as a commodity to trade between families and that's the basic and that's the basic thing and what the international community and NGOs have not done for a long time is like economically empower African women the African women have like you know consistently stayed as the unforgotten kind of um tribe of the world and that's like that's really heartbreaking but I'm quite hopeful with um with us coming out of covid at the moment now like you know especially within the UK and hopefully um within Ireland and other places that that governments will take heed and start working with people like the Five Foundation to just get money to women on the front line. Um it's not something we hear an awful lot about in Ireland. Do you have any insights into girls here who would have endured that FGM as well? Yeah, so we work so we have a partner called um IFRA who um works in Ireland and I and as I said my co-founder um Brendan Wynn is based in Dublin. So um and you guys recently had a prosecution for a girl that had been subjected to FGM. So it, like you know your numbers in terms of population are not as high as they are here in the UK, but the risk factor is is, is still there. And I think the Irish government is doing some incredible work um like you know domestically but the real work needs to happen internationally and i think it's like if we can get the international organization like international funding expenditure um from foreign aid to be able to support women and like economically empower women then things will change it's like kenya has uh, one of the programs over the last 10 years in kenya through microfinancing which is one of the things that we say will end fgm has lifted almost 250,000 women out of poverty and once you lift like it's really not that dissimilar to how the how Ireland and also the UK and everything else evolved it's like when you start giving women opportunities to work their daughters do better their granddaughters do better so within within the next decade we could actually see like africa um being a place where poverty doesn't really exist i was one of the kind of impetus of starting the five foundation was i was at a event in 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 new york where um where bill gates was talking about poverty and i just looked at this map of africa and i just thought every single place that is go is poor and where poverty is going to double has fgm child marriage and girls out of school how in that in the world do you expect things to change if 50% of the human capital of those countries are maimed murdered like you know not educated of course poverty is going to exist so we have this misconception that poverty just happens we create um the kind of the breeding grounds for that and fundamentally to that is the lack of investment in women so if we can change that i would be incredibly happy i mean it wouldn't be too simplistic i hope not to say that all of those things child marriage fgm it, it's all about control and power over women and dominating women seems to be the common thread between them all and and you're doing so much work to try and 
challenge that and change that in all those countries and hopefully it's having an effect yeah definitely and it's also the lack of respect for women as human beings I think that's the thing it's like it's it's the lack of dignity for women and and we know the fact that if women are not seen as citizens and they're not contributing to the economy then they're kind of forgotten about and, and that's one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we talk about pain and pain only relates to things that like you know impact men so like so we're all freaking out about COVID at the moment which is like yeah it's a it's a global p- pandemic but there's been a pandemic going on for the last like millennium on women and nobody actually really cares it's like there are stats that come up saying like you know women of color in america are 300 times more likely to die giving birth like n- nobody cares about all these things because it impacts only one percent like you know one side of the global population but as soon as it impacts men it's like oh my god we've got to do something about it and I know like I'm not trying to downplay COVID but I think I'm more likely to be raped and murdered than I am to die of COVID which is like and 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 there's like well, one of the things that really offends me on social media and the way things are reported everyone keeps going about how COVID has spared Africa. Africa's been massively impacted by COVID and the horrific side effects of like like domestic violence, rape, um FGM and early forced marriage um going up. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point and really important, as as you said, not trying to downplay a global pandemic, but also to point at the fact that this um, discrimination and this terrible stuff has been going on for centuries. And, you know, we haven't had the outrage that we have about this particular virus, you know, but hopefully there are more people like you speaking up and all of us speaking up about it. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. Let's talk about the book. It's called What We're Told Not to Talk About, but we're going to anyway. It's a very long title. It is. (laughs) Why did you choose to go to those places, to the places where women often keep secrets, things that we don't talk about because there's shame and stigma attached to them? Um, because that's because it's one of the things like I've never been embarrassed about my anatomy and what's been really interesting is that people haven't been that embarrassed about asking about my anatomy because of what's happened to me there's been a very interesting voyeurism in that um, in this it was really interesting cause, like um, when I was when I was doing the campaigning one of the things that um, that I wanted to do was get data and we had to get to the UK's head of um, a national health service in order to agree with us on that. And I remember walking into that. And this is the Secretary of State, the well-educated um, man. And I'm I'm there as a survivor of something that's horrific and all these things. I walk in and the first thing he said to me is like, do you know, can girls like you have an orgasm? Like men. And I was like, and I looked at him. And because I've been asked that question so many times, I had a good comeback for it. And I said, well, it depends on how good you are in bed, Jeremy. The scene you're married, we're not going to find out. Like, you're not going to find out. So, and it's those kind of having to deal with real um, invasive questions about my own anatomy. I thought, like, and we always talk about those conversations, like, you know, behind closed doors and all these things. And I knew there were so many myths around it. Like, for example, like, yes, women that have had FGM can have orgasms depending on who they're having sex with and what their comfort is and like all these other things. And there are women who haven't had um, or, um, FGM who can't orgasm. So I just wanted to really bring these things to the forefront and really say that there are millions of us out there having the same um, conversations. Let's at least speak to a few of them. And at the beginning, the book was meant to be called Root and it's meant to be a little bit more funnier than it is because it's like some of the stories are immensely deep. And, and it was because these women 
because because I overshared, they were happy to share their stories with me. Like it starts off as a funny story, but then it comes into a really um, deep narrative. And I've tried to keep their voices like um, constant, like, you know, there within the stories. So yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted us to overshare because honestly, there is nothing for us to be embarrassed about. And the more we talk about it, the more that we see, like, I, you know, that, that there is this um, kind of force trying to control us and that force is always created in order to limit our happiness. Yeah. So you have 14 countries, 42 women, and you interviewed women with stories that were very personal um, about some of the subjects, like the, the chapters are periods, pregnancy, um, orgasms. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the women that you spoke to, because you spoke to someone um, who was living as a homeless woman and about periods and what, what that's like and things that we might not consider when we see a homeless woman on the street. Yeah, so definitely. So one of the things is like I wanted to be able to have like you know a scope because I think we talk about period poverty and that's a reality. But like you know, women in like you know in our in the major city of the United Kingdom are living on the streets and living in absolute poverty. And the idea is the fact that like periods don't discriminate. It's gonna come like you know every week. And this was one of the, um one of the kind of the thoughts that I had was like I remember um like forgetting like you know where, where you start your period randomly and I like running in and buying some pads and sometimes you do have like several pads in your like drawers at work and stuff like that because you always um are, like you know caught short as it were and I just thought imagine having to choose between eating and getting a um and getting a sanitary towel or even like a, and the idea of never being able to use a tampon because it's not hygienic it's like those are things that we think like you know happening in like you know countries um like you know far away from us but it's happening in our major cities where we're basically drinking coffee and stuff so i really wanted to interview becky who was like this woman i always used to walk past on the strand in um in london and she was open to do that and i explained and i like you know basically said that this is not about me trying to be like you know I, I I don't want to ask you these questions because I want to be able to like you know exploit you or make this into something about me. I just want people to understand that like you know women are bleeding every single day and this is a reality and we just don't we just I think we just walk past homeless people and we never see them and it's very rare to see homeless women because the streets are a lot more dangerous for them. That really um, stood out with me and I wanted to have those conversations and also it's like all the things like you know that we never. I can know, think about because I went to Calais in 2017-18 with an organisation that works with refugees. And it's just like, you're just thinking like, I find it hard to start my period in Glastonbury. Like, imagine starting, like you're in a refugee camp. And there's also a, a chapter, Orgasms, a sort of exploring desire and exploring women's first kind of feelings, as you call them, flutters. And I think our own Maura in Love Island was a big fan of the fanny yeah. flutters as well. So tell us from your own point of view, after as a survivor of FGM, was it important for you to talk about that, to talk about desire and sex and sexuality? Yeah, no, definitely, because I think that's the main question that everybody asks, and I think asks about, and one of the things about um, sex and sexuality is that it always belongs, the pleasure is always meant to be with a man, and even, like, you know, I, I found that really interesting, even in, in a Western community, where, like, everybody talks about having sex, but nobody's talking about orgasm, so when when people are like, you know, you're going to talk about the first time you had sex, I'm like, no, the first time you had an orgasm, like, did you enjoy like you know having um um sex and having an orgasm and for me because of my fgm i'm super protective about my own pleasure and it's like the idea like it's really i think i find it more depressing that people like you know people just don't want to 
prioritize their own pleasure. I was like, why? If you live in a country where you are allowed to do that to a certain extent, there's no legislation stopping you from it. There still is the cultural narrative. Like, why why wouldn't you want to put your, um, like, you know, pleasure um, first? And also, for me, I was just like, after 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 I had my defibrillation, like, my vagina was, like, reopened. I was just fascinated by, by it. And it's uh, bizarre that... I always say that if I didn't have FGM, I don't think I'd be this interested in my anatomy. But, uh, but because of FGM, I really, really am. And like, uh, actually, I, I also do believe in the female hard-on. So what Maura said about the funny flatters, um, um, you can actually get those. It's like, it's actually a thing. And it's like, if you're, not, if you're not really into a guy, then just don't, like, why would you, why would you stay with him? And I, and 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 I remember one of my friends who was basically she ended up marrying the guy, which so I just didn't say anything in the end. But um, when, when she first met him, she was like, "But he's not that good in bed." And I'm like, "Why would you stay with him?" Like she said, "But he's really nice and he's a teacher." Blah blah blah. And I was like, "I'm sorry, I don't care how nice you are. There is no way that I'm sacrificing not having an orgasm for a good cup of tea or whatever the hell he's giving you." <laughs> I think that's the first time the female hard on has been mentioned on the women's podcast. Could you elaborate, please? Yes. Do you, well, the whole point is that I've, I've, oh, like you know, there's a, there's a like, like when, the, when like men get like aroused or excited by somebody. I think women get the same thing. It's like I think it's like an internal feeling that you can feel down there. So it is like the funny flatters. It's like you can see some guy. I can be like, oh my god, I really like, I, I really do want him and. But and for me, like you know, for, for a long time, that's how I dated. It wasn't anything to do with their stuff like that. But I would, yeah. So it's like the female. I think the female hard on the female desire for sex is a massive thing that nobody talks about. And I think we do like we cheapen um, our sexuality and desire into a very pornographic visual thing. But I think it is like internally essential. And I would really want women to kind of. Um, really embrace that and there is nothing wrong with that and also there is actually nothing wrong with breaking up people breaking up with people because they're bad in bed so that's one of the things I can't like I, men men will break up with you because you look like you know you've changed your hair or whatever it is but women who are forced to stay with men just because like we have to and you can't say that he's um terrible in bed or his anatomy is not exactly what you're looking for I've kind of um got myself well not in trouble but just like I've met some really incredible men but they just were lacking in certain places and I was like it's just not gonna work and he knows it's not gonna work but it's just like and I'm not and I'm literally not gonna fool myself into wasting like I'll give you a go once and then if it's bad maybe it was a bad off day but second time it's like sorry like that's that's literally a no-go one of the chapters is also about pregnancy yeah why did you want to include that rather than said parenting or motherhood? Because, but it's a, such a particular bodily thing for women. Yeah, and I think that's a, I think we I think we just assume that because women have been given have been given birth since the beginning that it's just this normal thing that nobody expects. So we kind of it's the same thing with the periods where it's just like well everybody has a period, so why are you complaining and why are you talking about pain and things like that? And I think becoming a parent you don't have to give birth in order to like, you know, or want to give birth in order to become a parent. I think there's many ways of actually doing that. And this is the relationship with, I, I want the relationship with women and their anatomy and how things change. So I think as a parent, that's, that's a relationship with an actual being and a, um, and a person. And also in a, I come from a community that it like, you know, prides um, itself on like every woman should have a baby, but never talks about the idea of the women that are struggling 
And learning about that was like, or, or having those conversations with um, with certain people has been like difficult. Like one of the girls whose sister is able to have children and she's not, and the idea of the fact that it's okay to say that you're jealous. And I just wanted women to understand that there's a personal relationship in that. It's like, it, it's a non-judgmental thing. It's, it's, it, it's, it's how they feel and getting um, access to that. And for me, like, you know, I've been thinking about it as well since lockdown in the sense of like, um, like I froze my eggs like last month mm. and, it was, and it was one of the most fascinating processes. And ironically, my eggs are frozen three doors down from the only guy I would have ever considered having kids with in his London office. And I was like, well, like, you know, and then I went on this date on Friday and it was quite funny. And this guy was like, um, I really enjoyed um, our conversation, but I'm not in a, I'm not in the stage for dating. Can we just hang out? And I was like, are you just trying to say, can we just have sex and nothing, no strings attached? And I really wanted to reply back. Um, I'm looking for heat to defrost my eggs at the moment and you and you just haven't got it. So I think I, like, I'm just fascinated about pregnancy and it's something that um, I, at the beginning of the book, I wasn't that interested in doing, but now I think it's something that I want to do and the idea of not being able to do it, I'm okay to say actually freaks the hell out of me. Uh, but how do I deal with that? And how do you normalize saying I could have become a mum, but I missed my opportunity and I regret that? And there's nothing wrong with saying that you can still be a feminist and regret not, like you know, um, having children. Mm. I mean, you and you froze your eggs. Was it a was it a difficult process? Did you find it anyway traumatic, or was it? It was. Do you know what? It was. Um, it was painful, and that's one of the things. Filling myself with hormones actually it did have an impact on me. And because I'm so open about this stuff, I I I talked about it, and I and I would actually love to write about it. But it was one of those things where the doctor who um who, who helped me freeze it is an incredible woman that puts women's health at the forefront. And at the moment, it's women's health is not put at the forefront. It's basically like you know get, getting as many eggs out of you. And the UK is one of the only, like, you know, first world countries that doesn't actually regulate how much hormones women are given. So you've got these private clinics that are just pumping women out of, like, you know, with, um, with stuff. It was, it was fascinating because in the, um, in the, in the room of a, um, of a fertility clinic, even before I'd um, had my eggs frozen, I'd spoke, uh, I'd, 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 I'd spoken to this doctor about the book and stuff. There is so much hope. But at the same time, there's all there's also pain, and I'd never seen that level of emotion. And the last time I saw that, the only other place I've seen it has been in a cancer ward. But I think that's the only thing that I can actually really um, what's it called like compared to when my mum had breast cancer, and you go into the consultant's room and you come out either with good news or bad news, and people try to either not break down or smile because they don't know what the person in the other room um, in the in, in the waiting area is feeling. That is the same kind of emotional thing within uh, within the fertility clinics i just think it's just like it's, it's yeah it's massively fascinating yeah what age are you nimco i'm 37 okay so you, you've frozen them and so if you if at some point in the near future you want to get and pregnant f- you have that yeah, and, and freeze them with uh, so basically it's the whole point it's like basically banking your youth and it's one of the things that i wish the uk government so it's it's easier to freeze your eggs when you're in your mid-30s than to get fertility when you're in your 40s and um, and the the, the the whole idea is yes. If I do find somebody, then we go together with um, with 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 the sperm and um, 
and unfer like you know and fertilize them and then I would have um IVF they would they would, um they would, they would be put in but one of my friends is actually just like but I wouldn't I was having the conversation that I wouldn't want to do it without a partner so I'm not that like you know incredibly um like eager to have kids on my own so there's one of my friends who's um searching the internet for sperm and I was just like why don't you just sleep with somebody you know the idea of like buying sperm which like your kids could be related to like 30 other kids is a bit bizarre so you might why don't you just sleep with somebody that you know I, that's if I was if I was that desperate for a child I would just like ask one of my friends I was like let's just let's just like you know give me some of your sperm rather than going to a bank and really paying for it but there's no judgment it's just like it's just one of the things that I would do. Yeah. And bizarrely, they only give you pictures of them as babies. I was like, I need to know what kind of children he's fathered before. It's like, it's, it'd be more, that'd be more interesting than actually seeing him as a baby. Yeah. Um, the last chapter is menopause. Why was it important to talk to women about menopause? Because it's another thing that often is very sort of shrouded and secret. Yeah, so because it's like it's something it's it's really interesting because I I had no I had no idea or no concept of the idea of menopause until I came like you know until I started having white women who were my friends or older friends because it's not something that um, African women talk about it's just this like the whole point that like, nobody says oh this is when my period stopped or everything else like that you we just assume that your grandmother still has a period I would have never actually even to this day think like think like you know my my grandmother didn't have periods because it's just like She's a woman, she gave birth. And it's just like, it's it's really just like breaking down those taboos because that's another stage of life that I hopefully I want to make it to. And for me, um, also, I think sometimes it, it is about, I just love talking to people. I just love to find out about these things that I can kind of um, relate to. And every single stage of my life, like periods, um, sex, pregnancy, if that happens and menopause, hopefully if I get to that, eight, um, if, if, if I do live, um, long enough uh, means that it's going to happen as a woman with who's had FGM so one of the 200 million women in the world and I just wanted to know what other women's experiences were and I just think there is just a lot more um, in sharing our stories and our lived experiences that we can really be able to heal women and yeah I just thought it's like you know I didn't like you know it's I didn't want to leave women out and I think it women that are not having not having children anymore hopefully they're still having great sex and I think those are the kind of, I think it's just something that we have to talk about. Yeah. Well, Scarlett Curtis calls the book hilarious and heartbreaking and it's women's voices from East London to Ethiopia. And like I said, you've, you've done an amazing, amazing work that has made such an impact in a, in a short space of time. So I'd just like to thank you very much on behalf of the women's podcast for that. And also, could you just finish by maybe telling us where we're at with FGM now and what your goals are and what you're looking towards doing? Yeah, so where we're at with FGM is that I said that COVID has had a really dreadful impact and kind of rolled us back. Um, but there is a tangible reality to end FGM by 2030. And it would be incredible for the Irish government, the UK government and other um, major first world countries to join um, the Five Foundation and really start funding women on the front line. Like, you know, local problems have local solutions. And I like, you know, respect and trust that African women are the ones that, they were the ones that went to the UN and defined FGM. And I think it's within our duty as global citizens to be able to fund them. So yeah, we can end FGM by, by 2030, but we have to be able to trust and fund um, women because like, you know, as crazy and as loud as I am, I think it's unfair that other women around the world should be like, you know, doing this work unfunded and that's just not like, yeah, it's just not fair. So we can end FGM, but we have to be able to fund women. 
Okay. Well, the book is brilliant. What we're told not to talk about, but we're going to anyway. Nimiko Ali, you're also brilliant. And thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was Nimco Ali there. And the book is called What We're Told Not to Talk About, But We're Going to Anyway. That's it for today from me. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Take care of yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.